listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Let's just all try and keep our pants on for the next hour. If we can just do that. It's the little things, ladies and gentlemen, like not embarrassing your team or your country or doing something dumb. Just one hour. Can we just get through an hour without anybody pulling down their pants or doing something dumb? That's probably not going to happen. We have results in from the TDSB about math. How do, you, how do you do in math? How do you feel about math? Well, if you're in grade 9, you probably shouldn't feel very good about it at all because the new EQAO results are out. And for the TDSB, grade 9 mathematic results show a decrease in the number of students that meet the provincial standard in both applied and academic. This is going to continue to make news throughout the day. It's just sort of happened, just come out now from the TDSB. We're going to stay on top of that. There is a cabinet meeting today at the Ontario Legislature. And what happens is the ministers go into the room and they have a cabinet meeting behind closed doors. And what happens is reporters camp outside of the door trying to get ministers on the way. And this is particularly important at this time because the Ontario legislature is not sitting and has not been sitting for some time and will not reconvene until after the federal election. So this is our really our only opportunity to ask some pointed questions of ministers, including the Minister of Education, who will be asked about these results and what the province plans to do about it. And, of course, he will also be asked about the fact that educational workers are in a strike position as of Monday. Now, the workers are going back to the bargaining table this weekend amid preparations for a work-to-rule campaign that begins, as I mentioned, on Monday. And talks involving the province and the Canadian Union of Public Employees are set to take place on Saturday and Sunday. Custodians, clerical workers, early childhood educators all say they're going to stop working overtime. They will stop performing extra duties. The union has issued a required five days notice to put it in a legal strike position as of Monday. Now, just to be clear about this, we're not talking about a strike on Monday. We're talking about job action the union is uh, really quite adamant about you know making sure that there's a difference there, that there's a perception of a difference there. And there is going to be obviously a big push this weekend to try and get this done. We are hoping to get an update from the Minister of Education. We're going to check in with Travis Damrej, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, who is uh, standing by in the halls of Queen's Park. That is coming up in our next segment. But let's begin with a quick roundup of the election going-ons. Andrew Scheer is in Quebec today. You know, what are his electoral chances when it comes to Quebec? I will let Mike LeCouture, our global national correspondent who is following the conservative campaign, lower the boom here. Go, Mike. Mike LeCouture with Global National. Here in Quebec, a lot of your own views differ with Quebecers, notably on same-sex marriage, the environment, Energy East Pipeline, and Bill 21. Isn't that a major hurdle for the Conservatives to actually win votes here in Quebec? Uh, Not at all, because uh, Quebecers know and Canadians know that we will not reopen those types of issues, uh, those social issues. That's been a very clear uh, commitment. And I know that here in Quebec, uh, Quebecers would prefer to purchase Canadian energy instead of uh, oil and gas coming from the United States or Algeria. That is Andrew Scheer answering a very pointed question this morning from Mike LeCouture. Now, the leader, Mr. Scheer, has also promised Canadians a balanced budget, but has yet to explain exactly how he will do that. 
Which brings us today to the Greens. Green leader Elizabeth May says her party, if elected, would balance the federal budget by 2024. May opened Wednesday's campaigning by offering the costing of her party's platform. Her proposed series of new tax measures that she says would create tens of billions of dollars of new revenue, among them is what she calls a quote-unquote small tax on financial transactions that would raise $18 billion by 2025. Now, here is Elizabeth May answering a question from David Aiken of Global National about the importance of balanced budgets, considering the fact that the Liberals won won last time around by promising deficit spending. But we believe Canadians need to see fiscal responsibility. It's something that Greens have always cared about. And we balance the budget in the same period of time in which Mr. Scheer plans to balance the budget. But we do it by expanding revenue because we're significantly expanding social programs. That is Elizabeth May speaking this morning. May saying the Greens would increase corporate taxes, close capital gains loopholes, apply a wealth tax to Canadians with more than $20 million, and eliminate fossil fuel subsidies. And previously, the Greens had promised new spending to introduce universal pharmacare, abolish tuition for post-secondary education, and provide universal child care as well as protecting the environment. But at least Ms. May is actually saying, we're going to raise your taxes. You know, at this point, we have the other parties just promising the moon and back, and how are you going to pay for it? At least Ms. May says, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to charge you. To the Liberals now, who this morning, Justin Trudeau just wrapping up just a couple moments ago, a news conference in British Columbia where he has promised a $40,000 interest-free loan to make homes energy efficient and safer from severe weather, also promised low-cost insurance and floodplains, and again, absolutely no idea how we're going to pay for it. So there's that. No details to accompany his announcement Tuesday either on the environment to achieve zero net carbon emissions by 2050. Now here is Justin Trudeau in conversation with Global National anchor Donna Friesen, who asked Justin Trudeau about what many perceive as a double standard when it comes to the Prime Minister. Why is Trudeau allowed to remain and continue to run after his racist scandal, he would not be so forgiving of others. You know, people have been fired for doing this, certainly lost their reputations for it. You've asked for forgiveness, but why should Canadians give you a pass? Because you're leader of a party? I am someone who has demonstrated throughout my political career and indeed as Prime Minister that fighting anti-black racism, fighting systemic discrimination, fighting unconscious bias and putting real money and real initiatives and working hard to fight uh, all this intolerance uh, is something that I'm, I've done and I'm going to continue to do and I'm going to continue to do even more uh, given that uh, I have uh, obviously not lived up to that in the past. That is Justin Trudeau speaking to Global National's Donna Friesen in his first one-on-one interview since the entire blackface scandal broke. I will not call it brownface. Here is Justin Trudeau further in the conversation where he and Donna Friesen discuss what I contend is really the greatest threat to Trudeau in all of this. 
And that is the fact that he has brought embarrassment, international embarrassment, upon this nation again. You know, lots of people are making fun of you. Comedians, late-night talk show hosts, you become the butt of jokes. Do you think you've embarrassed Canada on the world stage? I, I think uh, we, we've seen a, a um, social media world and indeed an entertainment world that has uh, you know, chosen to poke fun at me for many things in the past. Uh, I think at the same time a lot of people know that the things we're doing as a government and the things that we've achieved and what we stand for uh, also matters. And you know, people will do what they do. I'm going to stay focused on serving Canadians in the right way. This made headlines around the world that other stuff doesn't. This did. Well, there have been other times that there have been headlines around the world for, so for you don't, my behavior. So you don't think this was stands out as a particularly... I, I absolutely this does. Absolutely this does. And it forces me and us to continue to do even more to fight discrimination and racism. It's certainly something that I'm going to do. Pointed questions there from Donna Friesen, the anchor of Global National, to Justin Trudeau about how possibly can you equate what has happened here with this blackface scandal to, you know, negative headlines about your socks or, for that matter, your over-enthusiasm with costumes on the trip to India. These are not the same things. Got an interview there, and you can see it on globalnews.ca. Just type that into the old tube, whatever tube it is that you're using on the Internet, and, and there it'll come up. Trudeau is one of three federal leaders in British Columbia today, where the NDP's Jagmeet Singh is to meet with the mayor of Vancouver today, who is a former NDP MP. Singh holds Stewart's old seat, and the NDP says that Jagmeet Singh is going to unveil a quote-unquote new deal to make life more affordable in British Columbia later today. Also, the People's Party leader Maxime Bernier begins a Western tour his first extended trip of the campaign with an appearance at the Surrey-British Columbia Board of Trade. Welcome back to the program, and I have been so fortunate over the years to have so many great jobs in journalism, and it's difficult to pick the favorite, but I think... For me, my favorite job, other than the one I have now, of course, it was being the Queen's Park Bureau Chief and working at Queen's Park. It's a magnificent building, and, you know, every day you go to work, you walk in there, and you think, I work in a castle, and I work in a castle of democracy, and the work that happens there is so important because what the Ontario government does and what it decides to do has such an impact on your life. You think about it, health and education and all the rest of the things that the provincial government is mandated to take care of. And, you know, your vote is so important, and those stories are so important. And today is a cabinet meeting, and I'll just give you a, kind of a scene center how this works. is On the second floor of the legislative building, in a beautiful wood-paneled hallway, It's there's two doors. There's the door to the premier's office, and then sort of kitty-corner, right to the side of that 90-degree angle, is another door that leads into the cabinet room. And this is where the cabinet meets, and so cabinet ministers, when they are coming to the cabinet meeting, they actually have to walk through the hallway, and that's where you find uh, all the reporters and the cameras. 
And they try, the reporters and journalists, to try and get answers from the cabinet ministers. And it's kind of a weird thing because you'll be sort of in a scrum with one minister, but you're, you're not really looking at that minister because you've got your head on the swivel because often at that point, another minister that you really want to talk to will try and get past you. And you got to get in there and kind of block them. It, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a totally bizarre, weird situation. And the most recent cabinet meeting... Most of the Ford government ministers just walked right on by, didn't answer any questions. Travis Danaraj is the current Global Queens Park Bureau Chief, and I'm just guessing you're standing in that hallway and you got your head on a swivel. Who have you seen so far? I'm standing in this hallway, and I was listening to your beautiful intro, Alan. Um, but I have to say, I have your desk right now, and you have left some questionable cologne in the desk from years ago when you were here at Queen's Park as a bureau chief. So I will bring that to you <laughs> next time. I'm up, uh, it's the, uh, it's an aqua velva, and I used it only as a vermouth exactly. at one point. I, I don't even want to say what it is, because it's, it's Axe. Oh, so. is it? Oh, that's where that went. <laughs> That's where that went. I am in the hallway here in front of the executive council chamber, uh, in front of Premier Ford's office, and we have yet to see any ministers show up for this cabinet meeting. It's scheduled for 1230, uh, but as you said, the last time we were here, uh, most of the ministers kind of walked through the, the back hallways to get, there's another entrance to get into that executive uh, council chamber, and that's what most of them did, including the premier. Um, a lot of questions today, specifically on the education front. Of course, yesterday we found out uh, that uh, educational support workers are going to start a work-to-rule campaign on Monday. That's 55,000 workers that include custodians, uh, administrative assistants, early childhood educators. So we want to talk to Minister Stephen Lecce about that. We are told that uh, once he arrives, he will stop uh, and address the media. The Premier, however, is not going to be talking today. Okay, so Stephen Lecce is uh, target number one for the press because of what's going on in the education sector. He has been mostly pretty available. Anybody else you're looking for today? Uh, we want to talk to Todd Smith as well. I suggest, you know, uh, for our listeners to go on to uh, our website, globalnews.ca, and, and check out a story that our colleagues at Global Kingston put out uh, yesterday. It's on the decommissioning of the White Pines Wind Project. Uh, this goes back to, you know, when Ford was campaigning, saying that he was going to pull the plug on uh, green energy projects that he thought were wasteful, a waste of money, that the, the Liberals green-lighted. Well, uh, we put out a story yesterday on the fact that this project is going to, they're going to start decommissioning that project on the 1st of October. But what we've been trying to find out uh, from the ministry and also from uh, the uh, MP for that area, MPP for that area, Todd Smith, is how much this is all going to cost taxpayers. And we don't have that answer yet, so we're hoping Todd Smith will shed some light on that issue as well. Yeah, much, much has been made about that and the thought that this will be, you know, akin to the cancellation of the gas plants. Maybe not that kind of money, but mm. this is a cancellation of a contract, a signed, sealed contract, and that has financial implications. Travis Danaraj is at Queen's Park. He always smells good. Always that's appreciate you being on. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. I appreciate that's you being on the program. Fine. Uh, I want to take you to court and just a fascinating court case that is underway. And that is in Ontario court where they are expected to hear the case today of 11 people who won the chance to apply for a cannabis retail license only to be disqualified shortly afterwards. 
The applicants are requesting a judicial review of their rejection, as well as the procedures involved in the lottery that has been used to grant all of Ontario's pot shop licenses. The Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario said in August the group had missed a deadline in the application process. But the group says it's not the case. Now, earlier this month, a Toronto judge basically paused the entire process, just froze the whole thing. So now we're in a situation where there just isn't anything happening as we wait for this court case to play out. There is also opposition from lawyers representing a new slate of applicants selected to replace the 11 that were eliminated. So essentially, these people didn't have their, the applicants didn't have their stuff in place. And then all of these sort of wait listers said, well, okay, now you get it. And now they're upset too. Everybody's upset. Karim Assad is a lawyer who has been covering this case and had a fascinating, really deep dive on Twitter, Twitter thread yesterday that I recommend you take a look at. She joins me on the line. Hi, Karima. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How about yourself? I'm good. So you're actually at courts quite full down there? It's packed. I was actually sitting on the floor initially. There was standing room only, and my heels did not permit, so... So there's going to be a lot of people who say, listen, I'm not interested in cannabis. I don't. Why should I care about this story? Tell me why, in terms of the rollout about this and how it's been handled by the government, is, is there a reason for concern? So the, ACG, the AGCO was tasked with um, a fair process to distribute licenses. Um, and, you know, taxpayers in Ontario... Um, this is what we are we're paying for, effectively. Um, and now where we have a situation um, that there's dispute about who did what correctly or not, um, we're here in divisional court, again, funded by uh, taxpayer dollars. So I think it's really relevant whether or not you have an interest in cannabis, um, just keeping the government accountable to what it's meant to do and acting in a fair and transparent way. From your assessment, how has this lottery system been working, and is it fair and equitable in terms of who is getting what appear to be extremely lucrative licenses? Well, I'm glad you used both the words fair and equitable, because theoretically, a, li- a lottery process is fair. Um, you submit your application, you have a chance of being drawn from the hat, so to speak. Um, but is it equitable? I would say no, a hearty no, because uh, there's a couple of reasons. First and foremost, in order to participate in the lottery, um, you need significant access to capital. And that's not problematic, perhaps in and of itself, um, since the government does have an interest in ensuring that stores will actually be able to function and operate, um, but it does preclude um, a certain group of people. And even leading up to the second lottery, some of the requirements, such as proving that you have access to liquid funds, banks were no longer issuing those letters. So people who otherwise could have applied weren't able to simply because what was needed didn't exist. Um, More generally, uh, when we think about cannabis, I think part of the conversation that isn't really getting enough airtime is that we are emerging from nearly a century of prohibition. And there are people who have helped bring about this legalization who have no prospect of winning the lottery. Uh, And and the last thing I'll say is that uh, although the rules do have certain restrictions um, for who can 
apply and how often. In practice, uh, it appears that some people submitted multiple applications under different names. So they really gamed the system and stacked the deck in their favor. Karima Sutt is a lawyer specializing in the cannabis industry, and she is at Ontario Court today uh, listening in to these proceedings as the rollout of the Ontario cannabis storefronts is completely frozen at this time. Karima, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Isn't that interesting that the chaos in all of this, remember that under the previous administration, we were going to have a public system. We were going to have stores that were operated by the Ontario government, that they were going to be staffed by union members. And then when the Ford government came in, they said, nope, a private system is much better, is cheaper and more desirable. And I'm not arguing in favor of one over the other, but you will see that certainly in terms of being able to give out these private licenses, it has not been a smooth rollout in any way, shape, or form at all. Welcome back to the program as we attempt to get through the hour without dropping our pants or grabbing our buttocks. Isn't that fantastic when news like that, you heard the Austin Matthew news, of course, and I don't mean to make fun, but come on. Let's talk about something perhaps with a little more heft. The White House releasing the transcript of that call between the U.S. president and the leader of Ukraine. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the details. The five-page transcript is not word for word. A footnote details that this was recorded from notes taken in the Situation Room. The call was congratulatory in part, as Donald Trump said it would be, but at one point it does pivot to Joe Biden, when Trump says he wants the Ukrainian president to have a conversation with Attorney General Bill Barr and with Rudy Giuliani to look into the firing of a prosecutor that was looking into a company that involved Joe Biden's son. There is a dot, dot, dot in the paragraph before Trump says, it sounds horrible to me. Meanwhile, the whistleblower complaint that sparked this could be kept out of lawmakers' hands. The Department of Justice has usurped the Inspector General's findings, believing it to not be a violation. The Intelligence Committee is now requesting documents be handed over by Friday linked to that decision. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi launching a formal impeachment inquiry against the president, acquiescing to mounting pressure from fellow Democrats and plunging an already deeply divided nation into an election year clash between Congress and the president. I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella of impeachment inquiry. And you may have noticed that Trump opponents are celebrating, Trump supporters are denouncing it all. What does it all mean, really? in terms of the mechanics, pardon me, of American politics and how the Constitution works. Here's a closer look from our Jackson Prosco on how impeachment actually works. Depending on who you ask, impeachment is either a worthy goal or an outrageous abuse of power. Either way, there's no doubt that the I-word is a politically charged term, especially for those who have to decide whether or not to exercise their power and start the impeachment process. First, some history. The mechanisms for impeaching a sitting president are actually laid out in the U.S. Constitution. 
Article 2, Section 4 says the President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The nasty business of actually impeaching a president falls to Congress, and both the House of Representatives and the Senate have unique roles to play. The House of Representatives decides whether or not to bring charges, what are known as articles of impeachment against a president, deliberating like a grand jury that's considering an indictment. The Senate then conducts the trial and ultimately decides whether a president should be removed from office, and it really is a trial, presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, requiring a two-thirds majority vote to remove a president from office. But he didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't matter. We will impeach him. Only two presidents have ever been impeached, Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. We must stop the politics of personal destruction. But no president has ever been removed by impeachment. The Senate has never taken that final step. Even though the Constitution clearly spells out how a president can be impeached, it's a little vague about what exactly a president can be impeached for. Treason and bribery are easy enough to understand, but high crimes and misdemeanors? No one has ever defined what exactly those are. You see, the problem is that because high crimes and misdemeanors are subjective terms, those bringing forward the articles of impeachment have to make a tough political calculation. How do they convince the public that a president should be removed from office without it looking like they're doing it for purely partisan reasons? There's a sense that maybe the power to remove a president from office is best left to voters for that very reason. After all, they already have the power to remove a president from office once every four years. And that is Jackson Prosco explaining how impeachment works. Hope to bring you up to date on that. And of course, it will develop over the course of the day. Expect more developments on this entire impeachment thing. Stay with us. Thing. It's an impeachment thing. It's an impeachment cobbler. Is what It's a cobbler of impeachments. Delicious. According to a report obtained by the Toronto Star, Metrolinx could be looking at changes to Up Express. Have, have you taken this thing? I got all kinds of thoughts. But first, here's Dave Woodard with more. The report dated back in February suggests a number of changes to the line, all of which at this time are just theory. One of the plans is to change where the Union Station platform is for the Up Express, which would require Metrolinx to build a new pedestrian bridge that would see you have to walk further to get to the train. The document also sets out a plan to replace all the current train cars with electrified ones, which would improve service to the airport, according to Metrolinx, but would also include major changes to the infrastructure. No timelines were set out, and it's not clear whether all or just some of the changes would be implemented. Dave Woodard, Global News. A couple of things in there I want to highlight. One, the possibility of more renovation of Union Station. That's a good idea because we might actually finish it one day, and we don't want to. We don't ever want to finish Union Station. We want that thing to be constantly in a state of flux. We don't ever want you to know where to go when you're in Union Station because that, where's the fun in that? Well, if you go Every two months you go there, you're like, I've never been to this part of Union Station before. And then here's the other thing. 
Op Express, as you might remember, was built because of the Pan Am Games. That was the whole idea. The thing was going to be this boutique transit. It was going to pay for itself because all of these business leaders were going to come and they were going to shell out like 36 bucks a pop to go back and forth from Pearson to Union. Turns out, no, didn't work out that way. There wasn't that kind of volume for it. So then they slashed the prices. And you know what they did when they slashed the prices, folks? That means that you and I, as taxpayer, subsidize every single ride on that thing. And you know what it services? It services the downtown core and a section of the city on the west. And if you ever take that thing in the morning, you ever see it in the morning, it's full of lawyers and business people that are heading to the downtown core. And I'm telling you, they can afford to pay more. It's an absolute travesty. Jewel Labs is suspending all advertisements and now has replaced the CEO of the company amid an escalating backlash against vaping. Jewel Labs announcing not only that CEO Kevin Burns is out and Casey Crosswaite is in, but that the company is suspending all broadcast, print, and digital product advertising. Jewel says while the Trump administration looks at draft guidance on banning flavored e-cigarettes, the company will refrain from lobbying and will fully support and comply with the final policy when it goes into effect. Brian Burrow, ABC News. Welcome back. The Elevate Tech Conference continues in Toronto. And yesterday, Martha Stewart sat down with my co-anchor, Farah Nasser, to talk about how she's partnered with a cannabis company to develop CBD edibles and other things, CBD. Now, here is Stewart talking about her talk show co-host and legendary pothead, Snoop Dogg. Get to meet all the rappers and uh, all and many people I would never get to meet otherwise. And he gets to uh, learn how to cook a little bit more. He's a, he's not a bad cook, by the way, but he does smoke a lot, and um, and he is always high. And and uh, and most guests, most of our guests, actually pass through his trailer. He has a very large, fancy black trailer, and they pass by through the trailer, and they're always in such a good mood when they come out. And, and I have never gone in his trailer, and I never will, because I don't really partake of the, of the smoking type of uh, cannabis. Do you partake in the eating? Um, well, I, I've tasted gummies and things, and we're, that's why I'm working with, cannabis, uh, with uh, Canopy, because I think uh, there is a, a way to make food um, uh, a, good, a good sort of background for CBD. What was the experience like? Tasting it, eating it. Well, we all got a little silly. And, uh, you know, I had a big weekend party up in Maine. And in Maine, it's legal. And you can grow eight plants. Eight, every adult can grow eight plants in the garden. And I haven't seen any in my garden up there yet. But I'm sure it's somewhere on the property. But, um, but we, um, we were all eating gummy bears before dinner. And you know, everybody's appetite sort of waned. And it seemed to have a very good effect. That is Martha Stewart yesterday speaking with my co-anchor Farah Nasser talking about when she ate gummies and things got silly. They let the pasta go past all Dante. That's what they did. To talk more about what's happening at Elevate today, I'm joined on the line by Camille Karamali, Global News reporter. Hey, Camille. Hey, Alan. Yeah, not as many big names uh, today. We saw Martha Stewart, Michelle Obama, Chris Hadfield had a one-on-one with Global News. But uh, today is more about students and, uh, I guess, young developers trying to connect with uh, some of these um, 
you know, big tech companies. So we're seeing a lot of young faces around. I'm feeling a little old here today. Uh, that is that is something because you are barely 15 <laughs> years old yourself. That's right. Just just uh, just in high school, you know. Uh, and and Global News hired me, so you know what? I, I feel like I'm a phenom a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you're very popular down there. Now, there's some kind of competition happening today. Is that right? Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. So speaking of youth and and young uh, groups, uh, there's a whole bunch of startups and and uh, groups of young techies who uh, it's going to look like a March Madness Dragon's Den uh, type of bracket where. They're going to have different groups going head-to-head and uh, with their tech-related pitches. And then one by one, they're going to get knocked out. And then the winner uh, gets to sit down with us and chat and obviously, you know, garner some much, uh, you know, needed interest and big interest from these tech companies. But I think the real prize is getting to sit down with Global News and getting a one-on-one sure. interview with me. That's sure. the real prize. So who, needs, who needs massive funding when you can <laughs> sit down with Camille? That's the prize exactly. that you're it's looking all for. Clout, right? It's all about clout. <laughs> all right, Camille. Uh, you can look for uh, Camille's report tonight on Global News at 530 and 6. Looking forward to seeing that. Thanks, Camille. Thanks, Alan. All right, do you really need that B12 shot? Vitamin B12 has gained a reputation as a quick fix for fatigue. People want an easy solution to their exhaustion, and B12 seems like a safe, easy solution. But what should we know about the vitamin before we jump on the bandwagon and start jamming it into our veins? Laura Hensley is a global online reporter and journalist and has been looking into vitamin B12 shots and joins me live in the studio. Hi. Hi. What's with the B12 shots? Are they worth it or what? You know, for the majority of Canadians, no, we do not need B12 injections. It's something that I think a lot of people think they need because they're being, you know, promoted at spas by celebrities, by naturopaths. But 96% of Canadians actually have sufficient B12 levels. So this is kind of in this vitamin area. Often there's a lot of people like, I'm all about the vitamins. And then the actual science comes out and says, you know, you don't need to take 5,000 milligrams of vitamin C every day. Exactly. It's one of those things that I think people get behind because it's in the realm of wellness, right? You want to be as healthy as possible. Maybe you need some more B12. But really, if you're eating a diet that has natural sources of B12 or you even take a pill supplement, there is absolutely no need for an injection. Is there any evidence that it gives you what it's you know advertised to do, this bump in energy? No, I mean, I, the, the, the researchers I spoke to sort of said that this is something that's making a lot of money, but there's not really the science behind it. I mean, if you actually are B12 deficient, don't get me wrong, you do need a B12 supplement because if you are B12 deficient, you have low energy, you're lethargic, you can lose weight. But if you have sufficient levels, a shot of B12 isn't really going to do much. And it's, it's not harmful. It just doesn't do anything at all. Probably a waste of your money and your time. I, I think a bit of both, yes. <laughs> All right, Laura, I want to talk about this thing, because I, I, I'd never heard of this until I came across it recently, and it's called Instagram Face. Now, initially, I thought this was just a filter, like a Snapchat filter to make your face, but no. Loosely speaking, Instagram Face can be characterized as the following. Thick, arched eyebrows, full cheeks, eyes weighed down with enormous false eyelashes, and a large pout. It's a look reliant heavily reliant, pardon me, on injectable filler, contouring, and add-ons like false eyelashes. And now we're seeing reports from plastic surgeons and dermatologists that people are coming in saying, I want Instagram face. Yes. 
So Instagram face can be largely traced back to the Kardashian-Jenner clan. I think that if you are, you know, someone who lives in this world of pop culture, you know that Kylie Jenner is one of the biggest pushers of this so-called look. You know, her lips have been filled to a point where she's not recognizable to the person she was growing up. And I think a lot of women see this aesthetic and they're trying to mimic it. And there is obviously some dangers in this, and where we're talking about actual, if not surgical, uh, procedures, but injectables, and we've seen a giant jump in those. Well, because, you know, in the past, if you were to get plastic surgery, this was something that, you know, you had to have a lot of money for, and it was typically done by older white women. But now with Botox and injectables, they're more affordable means of sort of changing the way you look. And if you're just going and getting an injectable from anyone, that's a serious health risk. You know, we don't know the long-term effects of what these injectables can do. What I find so interesting about this is that it sort of becomes this, you know, we talk about, you know, magazines sort of promoting this unattainable beauty for women and how much, diff- how difficult that is. And now we have the these women, uh, the Kardashians, who are in charge of their own destiny in terms of what they put out, and they're the ones now leading this charge into, again, an unachievable look. I mean, if you think about, you know, when I was growing up, Kate Moss's look was all the rage, the heroin chic, the super thin. And I remember girls would go to great lengths to look that way. It was unhealthy. But what we're seeing now is just another iteration of that. And Instagram has become the new magazine, the new form of the way we get our information and the way we look up to women. And I think you make a good point. The Kardashians are in charge of curating what people see on Instagram. And when millions of followers are seeing this look, they try to imitate it. Laura Hensley, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. 